Hey folks, it's Sam Jacobs. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We have an incredible show for you this week. We have Alyssa Merwin who runs, she's responsible for LinkedIn Sales Navigator and she's VP of Sales Solutions for North America for LinkedIn. She runs a team of a couple hundred people. She is an incredibly accomplished and talented leader and manager and salesperson. And she has a lot to share with us about how you use trust and vulnerability and authenticity as a mechanism and as a driver to lead and manage high-performing sales team. So it's a really, really good conversation, and it's a topic that we that we don't cover often enough on this show. Before we get there, we want to thank our sponsors. We've got two sponsors on the show for you today. We've got Conga. Conga is the leading end-to-end digital document transformation suite. With Conga, you can simplify documents, automate contracts, and execute e-signature so you can focus on accelerating sales cycles and closing business faster. Go to go.conga.com forward slash sales hacker for more information. Our second sponsor is Outreach, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach supports sales reps by enabling them to humanize communications at scale. From automating the soul-sucking manual work that eats up selling time to providing action-oriented tips on what communications are working best, Outreach has your back. Now, if you're out there and you're listening and you've been listening, one of the things we want to ask you to do is can you please give us some feedback on iTunes as long as it's very, very good feedback. So if you could give us a four or five star rating on iTunes, that'll help ensure that we get a high volume of, uh, of great listeners on the show and it'll help ensure that uh, we can continue to provide the show to you so if you like what you've been hearing please rate us on itunes give us four or five stars if you don't like what you're what you've been hearing or listening i don't know why you're listening now but please don't do anything at all don't go to itunes and don't go don't give us any feedback we only want positive positive feedback now without further ado let's listen to Alyssa merwin Hey, everybody, it's Sam Jacobs, and welcome back to the Sales Hacker Podcast. We are honored today to have one of the people leading one of the most well-known companies in in the sales space and obviously in the professional networking space, and that's Alyssa Merwin. Alyssa leads LinkedIn's Sales Navigator business for North America, one of LinkedIn's fastest-growing businesses. In fact, every person that I know in Revenue Collective that talks about what's must-have in their tech stack Sales Navigator is always part of it. She's responsible for leading a multi-hundred person sales organization focused on providing a modern selling solution to sales executives at companies around the world. She's got deep experience in building high-performing sales teams, focusing on process, customer impact, and strong leadership and individual personal development. Prior to leading sales solutions, Alyssa led LinkedIn's North America search and staffing business, where she was responsible for all go-to-market teams. She previously led the, the part of the talent solutions sales organization. And before that, she spent her early career at Corporate Executive Board, CEB, which was acquired by Gartner, which wrote the Challenger Sale, and which is a best practices research and consulting firm. So, Alyssa, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We are excited to have you. So I just read your bio. We like to start, as we do, with what we call the baseball card, which is really just a way of, as we say, contextualizing your background and your insights and your expertise. So first of all, what's your official title? Official title, the Vice President, Sales Solutions, North America. Awesome. And so you've been at LinkedIn. Obviously, we I, we, I think we all know what LinkedIn but does, is, et cetera. But it's always interesting to hear from the person that works at the company how you position LinkedIn. So how would you describe what LinkedIn does? Yeah. So I would describe LinkedIn as the world's largest professional network with over 600 million members around the globe today and a great platform for companies to 
help them to hire great talent to market their products and services, to invest in learning for their employees, and then, of course, to provide what we like to think of as one of the most important sales solutions you can have for your business development. Yeah. Awesome. 600 million. That's a lot of, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> so let's, let's figure out how you got here because I mean, how are you allowed to tell us how big the sales navigator business is roughly? What kind of guidance can you give us on sort of like the book of business that you're responsible for? Hmm. I, I don't know. I don't think we publicly report it, so I don't know how much I can share, but it's, uh, it's a large, very large business and growing, uh, <laughs> growing at a, at a very healthy place. Very good. Very good. It's good. It's not accurate. (laughs) We got to take with, we got to take what we can get uh, when it's a public company. So awesome. So let's, let's go back a little bit to the beginning. So how did you get in, walk us through a little bit of your background. How did you get into sales? If I was, I was doing research on, on uh, LinkedIn earlier, and it looks like you went to Smith college. Tell us about the sort of experience coming out of undergrad and, and how you got your start in this world of sales. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I hadn't thought about this until you just said the Smith part, but I guess this has come full circle. And when, it, when I think about how I ended up where I am, it really came down to the network. So when I was graduating from Smith, uh, which was, is a wonderful liberal arts college with a, a, a double major in political science with a focus on sub-Saharan African politics mm. and French. Highly relevant, both yeah. of those, to yeah. sales. <laughs> I, was, I was very clear about nothing uh, in terms of what I was going to do with my career. I, I actually thought I wanted to go into into politics, it, perhaps into the Foreign Service, or work in an, an NGO. And after a couple of internships, promptly decided that either NGO or government agencies, neither of those were the route I was going to take. So mm-hmm. I, I decided I, I thought consulting felt like a really interesting place to go. And I had a couple of former Smithies who were at this somewhat small but fast-growing company in Washington, D.C. called the Corporate Executive Board. And I reached out and they got me, you know, helped me get my foot in the door. And the entry-level role at CEB was, was a sales job. And so it was certainly not by design that I ended up in sales, but it was the, the fastest path into, uh, into the company. And so that was how I landed my very first sales role, both through, you know, network connection and then and then taking the, you know, the, the first place, the first job that they offered me. <laughs> and what is, for those that, that don't know what CEB does, what does Corporate Executive Board do? What did they do? And you worked there for quite a while. Talk to us about sort of your journey through Corporate Executive Board and, and what your key takeaways were. Yeah, it was such a fascinating place to, to start my career. So, so CEB has a model, or at least had a model, that was based on this premise that if you are a, a functional executive, so let's let's pick finance as an, exe- as an example. If you're a CFO of a company, regardless of the size of the, the, the company that you work for, regardless of the industry that you're in, where in the world you happen to be located, you're likely facing a set of shared challenges that many other CFOs face. And so rather than going out and hire, hiring consulting firms or trying to come up with the answers on your own, why don't we pull the, pull the, the group to find out what are the actual best practices that others have already implemented. And let's go talk to those practitioners. Let's be able to document and codify what their process and approach was, bring it back to the members, and then allow everyone to benefit from that collective wisdom. And CEB did that across pretty much every functional area. So whether you're talking about HR or the IT space, legal, and 
and that it was a real it's a brilliant business model because you're tapping into the wisdom of the network to produce great outcomes for the benefit of everyone that's that's part of it. And so that's kind of the, the premise of the business. And then it expanded, of course, with some incredible thought leadership in places like Challenger. And you know, they're doing a lot more that's branched off from there, I think, in terms of professional services. But that's that's a headline. And were you, when you joined as a salesperson, were you doing outbound? Was there the concept of an SDR function? What were, what were your initial set of responsibilities and how did you, you know, how did you evolve within CEB over the course of, you know, those years? Yeah. So I was a BDR. That was the entry level role. And so I was paired up with a single account executive when we were you know, buddies. I was there to support him and my primary responsibility, it's like goes to tell you how far we're going back, was to cold call uh, in the, again, then in this case, my domain was was finance. And by the way, this is coming from someone who specifically chose a liberal arts college that had no core curriculum, so that I didn't have to take math or econ. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I found myself um, in the finance vertical, so it was a great education, uh, whether I wanted it or not. But I was cold calling Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 executives in the finance space, so investor relations, treasurers, audit executives, controllers, and CFOs, and setting up appointments for the account executive that I was partnered with to go and meet with them live because it was a pretty, we had an incredible, an incredibly effective sales process. So we were going out and selling at the time, five figure solutions to a problem you probably didn't know you had before we walked in the door and being able in, on, in a lot of cases to come out of the conversation with a signed contract or, you know, not too long after generally work us through work through a sales cycle. It was pretty methodical and it's such a great place to learn the art of sales. And so I, I was doing that. And I think if I remember correctly, the, the goal was to schedule 30 live meetings a month for the account exec. Wow. That's a lot actually knowing for, well, meeting set. I mean, I, I guess there's a percentage that were held, et cetera, but that's still quite a lot. I mean, yeah. These are live in-person meetings. Yeah. It was a lot. So I mean, imagine how many cold calls you had to make. You must have been very good at cold calling. Well, I was very persistent. <laughs> <laughs> what were while we've got you on this, and you know, we may we may hear later on in the conversation that you're going to tell us cold calling is dead as a as a senior member of LinkedIn. But while you were doing it, what were your key strategies? What were your tactics? What did you learn about how to deliver a great cold call that led to these? You know, to your point, right? You're trying to get the interest and engagement, the attention and the interest. If I'm doing AIDI in the right sequence of these executives, you have to say something compelling, you have to be engaging, and then you've got to get a meeting. How did you do it? Yeah. I mean, I really tried to, one, I tried to get as educated as I could to sound like a credible person that they'd be willing to engage with and hear me out long enough to compel them to take a meeting with the account executive. And so that meant getting smart on our research and insights so that I could, you know, call up a, a CFO and, and say, you know, let me tell you why, you know, 30 or 60 minute meeting with, with this, uh, this executive is, is going to be worthwhile. And so I think it was leading with content and insights that were enough to get our foot in the door. I do think, I mean, all joking aside, I think the persistence was paramount. Uh, I mean, such a tough, I mean, I think being a, a BDR is probably one of the toughest jobs in the world, you know, in the sales world. And so being super persistent, also being creative, you know, I was calling in off hours and also building relationships with the executive assistants and trying to find new and creative ways in. And then of course, you know, we had email, wasn't that that far back, but just trying to make sure that I was always following up with a touch point in the next step. In fact, I used to be quite good at, I'd call and if I got a voicemail 
I would continue to leave a couple of politely persistent voicemails and just inform them that I'd continue to call until I heard back from them. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes they would preempt with a, a response and we'd schedule a meeting or they'd politely let me know that they weren't interested. So I think it was a combination of, you know, let's lead with insights, uh, make it something that's compelling and that, it, that there'll be some value in the, in the meeting for them. And then just being willing to pick up the phone a thousand times. That's awesome. That's fantastic. And so I, I presume you were promoted into an account executive role and then on up into leadership positions. Is that walk us through sort of like the rest of the journey? Yeah, it actually was slightly different. I had a very strange first, uh, it was like first year out of, uh, out of undergrad into this job. My, uh, the manager of the BDR team that I was a part of left the company. And for some reason, I'm still still not quite sure I understand. They decided to put me in the role. And so I think I was only <laughs> six or eight months out of school and having been a BDR and I became the manager of my peer group, which for anyone that's done it before can be one of the hardest leadership transitions to make, especially for someone who is so new to the workforce. I, I made all the classic mistakes of, uh, you know, we were like, you know, all friends probably out to happy hour the night before. And then the next day I show up in my new job and it's like, a totally different person shows up at the office. I, I put on my manager mask and, uh, you know, and, and think that I'm supposed to be a different version of myself. And you can imagine how that played out. Uh, so it was a lot of, a lot of lessons early in what not to do as a leader, but eventually figured it out. And I stayed in that role for, I don't know, a year and a half or two years. I really enjoyed it, but I really, and being really honest, I really wanted to get paid to travel. And so I, yeah, I, I really wanted to become a, be an account executive. And so after I did the leadership role for uh, a year or two, I, I interviewed to become an account executive myself. And then that's when I, I got into my first, like, you know, true sales role where I was carrying, carrying a quota. You said something, you know, you said all the typical mistakes, but I think there's probably people out there that, that don't know what all those typical mistakes are. And you're right. When you're promoted above a group of peers, it's really challenging sometimes. Now that you've done it, I mean, it's amazing that you were in that leadership position just so early out of school, which is fantastic experience. What did you learn and, you know, what were the mistakes that you made and what do you, what do you know or what do you teach people at this point to do differently than the decisions that you made? Yeah. Well, listen, there, there have been many versions of the story across my career, so I'm sure we'll touch on some other mistakes in a bit. But uh, I think that uh, two that I'll just highlight that we were very clear things that I would have done differently had I, if I could you know, re redo th this all again. Uh, the first is this idea that I thought I was supposed to be a different person or show up, literally show up differently because yesterday I was a rep and today I'm your manager. And so I, I became more closed off. I, I stopped relating to people in the way that we had the day before when we were friends. I think I put on a very professional veneer that, you know, everyone's sort of calling bullshit on, like, you know, we know you, we like you, we're friends with you. Why are you, why are you acting like this? Uh, you know, so I think that, was, that was mistake number one. Uh, I would not recommend that anyone try to show up as anything other than who they actually are. And just because you're in uh, an individual contributor role one day and move into leadership the next does not mean you, you're supposed to show up as an entirely different person. So that's one. The, that's the good second, feedback. Yeah, yeah. The second is that I was, CB was really, really great at driving sales process. And there was a really predictable model and, and for how to advance a, a deal through the different stages. And, you know, it was, it was really more science. There's a lot of art, but it was a lot of science to, to how we drove revenue. And I got to be really good at 
driving the science. And, you know, when you forget too maniacally focused on driving the inputs and the metrics of the business, and you forget to focus on the people, that's also uh, <laughs> a recipe for disaster. And so I, I really had to figure out the, a better balance of, of not you know, focusing exclusively on the performance, but focusing on the people. And that, that'll be a theme that we'll probably touch on a few, a few times throughout this conversation. But it's, it's something that I also did, you know, to, totally backwards in, in early days. And so meaning sort of uh, like all of your one-on-ones and your group meetings, you're just talking about number of calls, number of attempts, all these things and never saying, how are you doing? That's right. It's good feedback. So now in our story, in the story of Alyssa, we're now an account executive traveling the world for CEB. Walk us through, you know, so what happened next? And I think to the point, although you, you already made that leap, you know, you made that leap from being an, an, a BDR to a BDR manager, then you became an account executive. But at some point you, you know, fully committed to management and leadership probably, or were asked to by management. So talk to us about the jump from account executive to, to leading teams and what you've learned along the way. Yeah. So I did the, the, the AE role for a number of years and I, I got, to, I did get to travel all over the world. We, it was the wonderful early days where we got to you know, kind of cherry pick the territory and I got to do Australia and New Zealand. And oh, so it was such a fun time and great learning experiences. And then I, I also got to go to London for two years as an expat. And so then I'm, I was based in London selling all over Europe, Scandinavia and South Africa. And so, I mean, gosh, what a wonderful combination of great professional experience I think even more importantly, incredible life experience. So that was just a, a, a wonderful period of life and had so much fun. Although I will say that on the professional side, I found it really challenging to be a petite American female uh, trying to sell to European financial executives. That was not my that was not my strongest performance as an AE over there. It was really tough, but it was great, just great learning and great great experience. But I I you know, probably like a lot of us, even you're a high performer and, you know, you're a good team member. You often get tapped on the shoulder, asked to do the player coach thing where you're managing your own book of business, but also coaching or developing other reps. And then that morphed into just larger and larger responsibility over time. And I remember when I came back from London, there was an opportunity to work for a really great girlfriend of mine who was leading our mid-market division. And she said, you know, I'd love for you to come back and be a leader on my team, but I want you to sell for the first quarter and learn this part of the business and also prove to the reps that, that you've got the chops to do it because you, you know, you, they don't know you, you've been gone for a couple of years. And I have to say that I thought that was, I was very annoyed by it, but by the way, at the time, but in retrospect, it was one of the best ways to Help me really walk in the shoes of the team that I'd be leading and also build incredible credibility by being able to show them that I could do the very job that I was asking them to do. And so that was uh, something I did for a quarter and then took on just full responsibility for leading the team without the personal quota of uh, you know, my own individual sales number outside of the teams and did that for, for a few years and then ended up taking over more and more, more responsibility for a couple of our different practice areas. So that means I expanded out from, at this time it was selling to general counsel, then into the CIO suite, and then went on to take over, in addition, the account management team. So that was the renewals and expansion business as well. So it was a great experience. It was a really fun time. And then I made a personal decision to move to New York City where we didn't have an office. (laughs) 
Fair enough. You're not here anymore, unfortunately. Uh, we are here waiting for your return. Um, <laughs> and so the, the move to New York, was that coinciding with, uh, with joining LinkedIn? Well, you know, it's it sort of led there, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't the impetus. I, I I was after after living in London for a couple of years, and there, I feel like there are only so many cities in the world that, that hold a candle to London. And uh, New York felt like the place that I wanted to be. And I remember I went into the office of our chief revenue officer, who I you know I, I knew quite well, and I said, "Listen, I love this company, but I'm I'm going to make a personal decision to move to New York, and if that means that I need to quit, uh, you know, I'm happy to do that. If it means I need to move back into an IC role, I'll, I'll do that." I'm open to anything, but I'm, I'm not staying in DC. And so, uh, and he said, well, let's give the remote leadership thing, uh, you know, a try. And at the time I had, it was about probably 25 people across a couple of different teams. And so I moved to New York and did that for a year. And it was, it was actually probably one of our top performing years. I don't know what that means about my leadership, but <laughs> having me further away. <laughs> means you believe in autonomy, and letting your people do what they need to do. There we go. That's exactly right. Uh, so it was great. It, it went really well. And in fact, I, I got an offer to then, we were in discussions about me uh, leading the entire mid-market division, but it meant moving back to Washington and I just said, you know, that's, that's just not in the cards right now. And, and that's where the, where LinkedIn came along. A good, a really good friend that I had met in New York, her brother-in-law happened to work at LinkedIn and he wanted to check a reference with someone on uh, someone that I worked with at CEB. And the, uh, as he was doing the reference check with me, he said, you know, by the way, we're always looking for good people. And I said, well, I appreciate that, but I'm, I'm not interested. And then I had coincidentally just the kind of same period of time, I'd had just a networking coffee with the CEO who was giving me some career advice. And he said, you know, if you, you're probably at a point in your career at CEB, this was probably eight or nine years in. He said, you either need to like double down and be there for the duration, or it's probably time to go do something else, but you're going to get stale unless you've decided that this is, you know, this is where you want to be. It's going to start to be hard over time for you to go do other things. And so I, I remember hanging up the the phone on that reference check conversation and then thinking back about that coffee chat with the CEO and thinking, you know, maybe I shouldn't be so dismissive. <laughs> so I, 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 I called him back and I said, listen, I'm, I'm not necessarily interested in interviewing, but let's, let's have, you know, a conversation and so I can learn more. And it turned out that LinkedIn was, this was the early days, you know, pre IPO. And it was one of those like absolutely crazy on paper conversations because, you know, running the, the mid market division at CEB was going to, you know, be a hundred people. I don't know, it was 50 or hundred million dollar business the role at, at LinkedIn that we were talking about was frontline managing five people. <laughs> and yet, and yes, here I am <laughs> eight years later. That is awesome. And through some just absolutely incredible growth. I mean, it's been, it's been amazing. I have a question. So you talked, you, you referenced it. You mentioned the, the concept of a player coach. A lot of uh, me and other folks that I talk to are always debating the player coach. Most of the people I know are coming down and saying, it doesn't work and that you kind of need to make a commitment as a, as an executive team to either put somebody in a management position or make them an individual contributor. What's your point of view? I'm mixed. I mean, having done it myself, I appreciate how hard it is to do it well. And I think it's really hard, at least in the way that I experienced it, because usually you end up with the largest personal quota in addition 
to the responsibility of managing a couple of other folks, which is perhaps there are better ways to structure it. <laughs> if you yeah. if you want to invest in developing other people and having them to be successful, perhaps you know I should take a little bit less on in my you know personal quota because it just makes it really hard to know you know, if you're paying me and measuring my success based on my personal number, and yet you really want me to, to, to do the coaching development, it's really hard to figure out that balance. And it, it in some ways is in really direct conflict. And so I, I think that my experience was, you know, kind of good, because it at least gave me some exposure to what it would be like to, to coach and, and manage others. But it, it was really tough. And I, I probably didn't do it very well. So I, you know, I, I, I think in theory, I don't love it. I will say though, we're in a position right now where you know, I've got about, I don't know, 40 plus leaders on my team. And there are a few more people that are really interested in leadership, but aren't quite ready, or we don't have a job available, for, a role opening for them yet. And so I'm entertaining in a couple of places to uh, this idea of doing a player coach role, creating one for them. This is a stretch opportunity, but recognizing that it may not be ideal, but if they're really passionate about leadership and I just don't have something for them quite yet, let's try to be thoughtful about how we construct it in a way that it can be more successful than what I experienced and probably what a lot of us have experienced. I think that's, um, it's a great perspective. So you have 40 leaders on your team. From my experience, often there's a jump in skill set that's required to be an individual contributor to be a manager, but then there's a whole nother jump in skill set to be a manager of other managers. What have you learned or what perspectives have you developed on how to be, you know, an effective boss that is overseeing a large organ? If you have 40 leaders, you must have, you know, a couple hundred people in your, in your go-to-market organization. How do you, what do you do? What are your strategies? What are your tactics for leadership when it comes to leading a team that large? Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, again, it's been a journey of lots of, of learning. You know, I think once you get into leadership, no matter what the, the scale is, and no matter how many people are working under you, you realize very quickly that you no longer have control. So I think it starts with, you know, recognizing that you can influence and you can guide, but you can't control the outcomes in the same way that you could as an individual contributor. So I think that was a really important first and early lesson for me is, is recognizing that. And, and then it, it begs the question, so what do you do? And, and, and I think that's where, it's, you know, you've got to be able to cast a vision and more importantly than even figuring out the right vision is figuring out how to bring people along. And so helping them understand the why of the things that you're asking the team to focus on or the what's in it for them. And so there's, I think a lot of, what I would just characterize as change management. That is one of the most important aspects of leading a team and leading leaders. There's also this, this theme around finding opportunities for observation. I think one of the things that I, I recognized pretty early on that was really hard was the further you get, especially if you're not even, you're not co-located with, with your direct reports, it's really hard to understand how they're actually doing because you don't get to sit in a, you know, in a room and observe them or um, you're not on calls together where you can shadow. And so you've got to create opportunities, whether it's shadowing team meetings or shadowing one-on-ones, which can be a little awkward, but finding some, some moments where you can really see how is my, how's my team showing up and how are they doing and how can I make sure that I'm giving them the coaching development that they need. So you want to find that right balance of, you know, enough distance and autonomy, but also enough opportunities for observation so that you can help make sure that they're, they're doing the right things in the right ways and that you're helping them get better. So those are a couple of things that I've learned. Yeah. 
and and one of the to the point of you know we're now later in the conversation but one of the things that you mentioned and in fact i was i was you know we were chatting offline about this article that you wrote about sort of your first i don't know if it was your day or your first formal review your first 360 review at linkedin and you mentioned a similar a similar challenge, which is that you weren't bringing your whole self to work. And I know that leadership development and personal development is, is a really, uh, is a passion of yours and a focus of yours. How, how do you bring your whole self to work? What do you say to people that are worried to exactly to your point about when they're promoted above their peers, they're worried that they're going to be taken advantage of. They're worried that they're going to lack credibility. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, so I, I think I decided actually this week that this is probably the most important work I do more important than trying to achieve the outcomes more important than all of the success that we want to have is, is actually focusing on the individual development and, and, and in creating an environment where our teams can thrive. And so, yeah, I mean, early, early in my career at LinkedIn, when I you know came over from CEB and I, I had you know, eight years of, of history there and, and reputation and relationships and I came into a new company, hard charging, wanting to make an impact. And in that first 360, I got basically hit in the face with like the hardest feedback I've ever gotten, which is basically like your team thinks you're robotic and, mani- and, and you're, they think you're robotic. They don't relate to you. And there are certain teams that would go into battle for you and your team would not go into battle for you. And it's a really, really tough message to receive, especially after having been in sales leadership for a number of years. And again, on paper, having taken the, like, the, the, the job I could do in my sleep. And so that was a real wake-up call for me about it's not all about outcomes. It's all about the people. And I had to do a lot of self-reflection and, and try to figure out what was I doing? How was I showing up every day in the office, in meetings, in my conversations with my team that was keeping them feeling so disconnected from me and making them feel like I didn't care about them. And so it took a, you know, it took a while. It takes a while to dig yourself. Well, first to figure out what it is that you're doing that's creating that environment. And then secondly, to figure out how to, how to fix it, you know, cause some people are more forgiving than others. And so I think that was probably the most poignant moment in my career that redefined for me what leadership was all about. And I intellectually knew it's important to care about your people, but I had never experienced such a stark contrast between what I knew to be true and what I was actually doing and what my team was experiencing. And so it led to, I'd say probably the last seven or eight years of body of work that I have been focused on, which is how can I ensure that the people that are part of my organization are better for having worked with me? And that doesn't mean necessarily just being soft and warm and fuzzy and, and nice to each other. It means how do we get to a place where we have so much trust and so much care for each other that we can get real and we can have really tough conversations in the spirit of pushing each other to get better and growing. And so, you know, implementing things like fast feedback, when we see something that isn't up to the standard or that we don't agree with, we call it out. We don't, we don't hide it. We don't beat around the bush. We have a conversation about it. Um, Do you have a, is it a private conversation or a public conversation? Yeah, interesting. You should ask. Many people may cringe at the thought of this, but oftentimes it's in public. And I don't mean calling someone out on the floor, but when we get together as a leadership team, we do some pretty intensive sessions around how we're showing up. And that's often in a group of, you know, could be five to eight to 10 people at a time. And we're sitting around the room and everyone's providing feedback in all directions. And that means I'm getting feedback in front of my team. I'm also giving it to them. And oftentimes it's skip level too. So it might be, you know, I'll participate with one of my director reports teams. And so 
it, it creates uh, a really interesting dynamic of, you know, not everyone's super comfortable, but I will say that the feedback I've gotten has been, I mean, just sort of heartwarming. You get, you know, no one likes it in the moment, but I think once people step away and reflect and, and look at the growth that they've had because of some of the, the moments of self-awareness and the, the feedback that they've gotten, many of them have said, I hadn't in my career had that kind of growth and I haven't had that investment since. And I, I think that gives me <laughs> a lot of comfort, even in the moments when everyone's sort of cringing that, that we're having to have these sessions. So uh, it's a little bit of both. And of course, you'd give feedback in private as well when, when it's warranted. My, this is me personally, to the point of getting real, my fear about that as a, I guess I would just have to trust that the organization is not so trigger happy around firing people that the, that the feedback is genuine and that the commitment to improvement is genuine and that I have enough time to work on it. Do you find that you need to reassure people that like we're giving you feedback, but your job's not on the line. We just want you to get better and you're going to have time to improve. How, how do you structure the natural tension between being called out in public on something that you need to improve with the underlying fears about job security? Yeah. You know, I don't know that, I don't know that I've ever explicitly called that out, but I actually think, so I think there's a, there's a, an important step before we get straight into feedback, which is creating a safe environment and demonstrating vulnerability. And so I think when, so what that would look like is I, you know, if I were kicking off the session, I would share with the team how I'm feeling. I would share some, it might be, I'm sure it's going on personally. I mean, it's, it could run the gamut, but it's demonstrating that as the leader, I'm willing to put my own feelings, emotions, insecurities out there. And I'm creating the space and setting the tone for the kind of conversation that I want to have. And by the way, I wouldn't do that if I didn't care. And so I think you, you can't just launch into feedback in front of a group of people without having the foundations of trust and vulnerability. And so that's a really important, I think, first step. And, uh, and I, I also talk about, I mean, I, I frame this for the team that you know, teams where there's no trust, everyone's really nice to each other it's only the teams where there's real trust that we can start to have these kinds of conversations. And then, you know, I think for, I, I, you know, I'm sure that there is some fear and insecurity with when we start to have these sort of exposing conversations, but at the same time, I think we've got enough of a track record of being really thoughtful and investing in the individual and giving them time and space to improve that, you know, I don't think I've ever actually let someone go because of the stuff that's come up in these, these conversations. So if it's gone that way, it's probably been a mutual decision that this just isn't the right you know, the right environment or the right kind of growth that they're interested in. So, um, I, you know, I think we're doing okay, but it's a really good call. And it may be something I'll think about for the next one. <laughs> I don't, I don't mean to second guess you. I have another question, which is something that you wrote about actually in that, in the, the blog post that you have up on LinkedIn around that tough 360 that you got uh, in your first period. And it said, you mentioned something about focusing on people's strengths and enhancing their strengths versus focusing them on trying to correct weaknesses and, or, you know, areas for improvement. So in that spirit, I'm also curious about your perspective on feedback in general and, you know, how changeable are people? How do you structure feedback to make it as useful and as practical and as actionable as possible? And do you find that it's sometimes trying to get somebody to correct a weakness is the wrong emphasis, but maybe it's let's try and enhance their strengths and get the most out of them. So I'm sort of leading the witness, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that came from a place when, when when that whole thing happened. I realized that what I had been doing when I you know came into LinkedIn, and I, it was so easy to identify that everything was wrong because I was coming from a really tight 
uh, sales operation. You know, I mean, it was a, I think CB was one of the most well-run sales organizations that I can imagine. And LinkedIn was, you know, it was this, again, early days, very entrepreneurial, uh, not a lot of process. It was so easy to figure out what everyone needed to fix or, and where I could fix everyone. And, you know, I think that was just this realization I had of, wow, that's such a crummy way to look at your people. <laughs> and, and then I had a, you know, learned from one of our, our leaders, Dan Shapiro, who had this perspective of, you can certainly try to go fix people, but wouldn't it be more powerful if you can help the, help them improve, find the one thing that if they can go from good to great, or the one thing that, that they can make progress on, that that might actually be more impactful than going and trying to fix something that some, you know, somewhere somebody doesn't have that capability. So I think it depends what we're talking about too. You know, if, if you're not making enough, you know, outreach and you're not out visiting customers enough, that's a different kind of feedback and coaching than let's figure out how to help you with your negotiation or closing skills and going from okay to great. So I, I think it just, it depends on, you know, what we're talking about. But I, I think in general with the feedback, I've always been a really big proponent of let's find the one thing not the 10 things. And I think many, many managers tend to find it's like flavor of the week. You pick one thing this week and one thing next week, but I think what's a lot more effective is to pick the one thing that really is going to be needle moving. And then let's stay on that theme until you make progress. And that's where I think feedback can be most effective. And that's, I think to answer your original question, yes, I think people can change as long as you're really clear about what the behavior or the skill is and you stay focused on it until there's progress. And do you feel like every piece of feedback needs to there, like, does it need to be correlated to something that you can measure so that you can, so that it can be clear to the individual what the feedback is related to? Uh, no, I, I probably give more, we, a lot more feedback on, on a lot of the soft, soft skills. And, you know, maybe this is because I'm, you know, mostly focused these days on leadership development, but I'll, I'll give you an example. We have a relatively new leader in the team and she's wonderful. She's so great. And had so many great things to share, but in a, in a group setting, she is really reticent to speak up. And when she has in a couple of occasions, it's been, she should have given away all of her power. It's rather meek. It's rather um, kind of quiet and under her breath. And, and so we had, I called her after one of the meetings and I said, you know, I'm really, I really appreciate that you spoke up and I, I really want you to be conscious of your tone and your volume and your projection because you're either giving away power or owning your power in that moment. And so that's not, you know, neither of us can measure that per se, but we can both be conscious of improvement from the, what the baseline was. And so, and she's great. And now she checks in with me after meetings and, and we can kind of assess for that, you know, the progress she's making. So that's an example of something that's, you know, much, on the, much more on the softer side. Yeah, no, makes sense. So if we're thinking about, you know, uh, to your point, um, a skill, something that you're passionate about is building high-performing sales teams. And part of it is creating an atmosphere of trust and vulnerability that starts from the top. Part of it is fast feedback. What are the other tenets that you think are really, really critical if we're going to build a team that that excels? Yeah. So I have not talked about this before because I haven't until this week. Uh, it's not something that I've really experienced before, but this week, my my direct reports and I did a North America roadshow. Each each day, we went across to one of our different offices and spent less than twenty four hours in each city uh, doing, you know, kind of an all hands rally cry. Let's finish out Q four strong and get excited for for next year. But we also decided to add a couple of breakout sections sessions that I was sort of characterizing as more humanistic and. 
they were conversations, just real, what I would characterize as real talk, real conversations that we're not used to having about the fears and the insecurities and anxiety that we all experience every day, but we don't talk about. And so one of those sessions was how can we have an honest conversation about how we're feeling the stress and anxiety for us, it's Q4 right now. And then how can we better balance and manage our emotional hygiene and stress? So that was one. We had another topic where a couple of my direct reports and I talked about what our hours are, how we actually, how hard we work, how long we work, what our days look like in the spirit of trying to demystify what I think can be very intimidating jobs. Because I'd had a couple of chats with reps who said they wouldn't necessarily want a job like mine because they wanted to have a family. And I I thought that was so so upsetting that they, they felt like they couldn't have both. And so we, we wanted to be able to have a, a real conversation about how do we get it all done and juggle it all. And, um, you know, and the reality is that in some cases, the more senior you get, it's not like you, you necessarily work longer hours. You just, you spend your time differently and you spend your energy differently. And so that was another conversation. But the last one, which was the most powerful, and I think is the work that I'm probably going to throw myself into most wholeheartedly is a conversation that we called removing your mask. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation today about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And that's a huge theme at LinkedIn. And I think we've done a, a great job in a lot of ways. And there's a long road ahead for us to really be creating a, an environment where everyone feels like they can be their full, true, authentic selves at work. And so we had reps from across the country in each of these cities sharing their experience of what it comes, it's like to come to work every day wearing a mask. And I'll just give you a couple of quick examples. In one case, it was a woman who was recently sober and she feels like she has to wear a mask every day when, you know, we're you're popping champagne to celebrate quota crossing or somebody's a promotion, you're going to happy hour and what her experience of the world is or someone who suffers from anxiety and depression. Uh, we had another one who she's a member of our team is a lesbian and, and to talk about her experience of the world and what that's like and actually how isolating it is because she feels so different and everyone else feels that she's so different. And so it's like, even though we have this incredible, loving, warm, caring culture, there are individuals and we all have stuff that we're dealing with in our lives. And I think that this idea of creating an environment where it's okay to talk about it might be the most transformative thing that we can do for a lot of these individuals. And I think for me, I'm a lot more focused right now on investing and creating a space for the humans on our team of people. And I think when you can create that kind of connection, that's when you build followership and that's where you inspire people and that's where they feel connected to the mission and the vision of what we're doing. And they'll go, you know, run through walls for you. And so I think that's a long answer to your, your short question. But that to me, I think, is the work around building high-performing teams these, these days. Is there a book we should read or somebody we should hire? Should we get you as a guest speaker if we want to do something practical and immediate to start installing and implementing, you know, some of what you're talking about? Well, I, I think I think I will write a book about this at some point. I think I think there is. I mean, this is I, I've never experienced this and the people in the room yesterday and this week have said, you know, I've been working for twenty five years and I've never had this kind of conversation at work. I think there is an opportunity to, to start a movement for all of us to create these kinds of, of open and safe spaces. Um, so I don't know that there's necessarily a playbook for that conversation other than, you know, seeing maybe test it out to see if that's, you know, take a few members of your organization and, and see if they're interested in having a conversation and sharing their story. Because by the way, what happened after the, those panels was the, the most exciting part of all of it is all of these people started to, to share their versions with each other and their stories. And 
feeling connected and feeling safe in a very different way. So that's, you know, maybe one is just go experiment. I, I will say that I think there's an amazing book called The Advantage that talks a lot about some of the the feedback and building great leadership teams. Uh, are you familiar with that that book? I am indeed, Mr. Yeah. Lencioni. Of course. It's, I mean, I think it's, <laughs> it's such a great, I would say more like hand guide or practical guide to handbook of how to actually do this and some of this stuff in practice. Maybe not the, what I just described, which is a, certainly a, a bit more personal, but on the team building and leadership development and, uh, and creating trust. I think that's probably one of the best books that I've seen out there. How about you? Do you have any others that you'd recommend? <laughs> that's what, what a great question. Well, Hmm. I mean, my favorite book on leadership, which I talk about all the time is this book, first break all the rules, which is, it's got like, I think 12 steps, 12 sort of sequential questions that have to be answered to build a really high performing team. That's one. And, um, and the first question that must be answered is, do I know what's expected of me? That is a, you have to be able to answer that question on behalf of, you know, the people that work for you, if you want them to do something, of course. So that's one. I, and to your point about Lencioni, you know, the five dysfunctions of a team is, you know, like the, the starting point for a lot of people as they dive into some of this stuff. Yeah. And I found that really, really interesting, really helpful. Yeah. I need to go read. I read the advantage. I haven't read the, the five dysfunctions, but I, I, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> there you go. Alyssa, it's been amazing to have you on the show. One of the things we like to do right at the very end is uh, pay it forward a little bit and uh, hear about people that have influenced you that you think highly of that you think we should know about. So if you're thinking about influences, mentors, people that you really look up at, uh, up to and respect, who are some of those folks that have played a, a, a pivotal role in your life? Yeah, well, I'll, professionally speaking. Yeah, I was going to say I was going to focus on the professional. I there are two that I would that come to mind immediately, and the first is a very, very dear friend and the woman who hired me into that uh, mid-market role after I was coming back from London, and that's Susan Miller. She, I feel like she took the first real shot on me as a leader and, and invested so deeply and was so great at being real and coaching me and also giving me just amazing stretch roles and opportunities before anyone else was willing to do it. And so Susan, love you and thank you. And she's amazing. And she's now the, the CRO, CRO of, a, of a really cool company. And then the second would be Pete Kim, who is the one who hired me at LinkedIn and who gave me all that really tough feedback that almost broke my soul. But it also is, I think, single-handedly responsible for transforming my career because without the experience of working for him and to know what it feels like for someone to care so deeply about you that they're willing to take you to a deep, dark place that you need to go face, I wouldn't be the leader that I am today. So just two people that I will have in my life forever. And I can't say enough great things about. Awesome. Alyssa, if people want to reach out to you after hearing what you've shared and are inspired by it, or they just want to work for you, are you open to that? What's your preferred channel of communication? How should people reach out if they want to? Yes. Well, as Pete said to me, we're always hiring great people. So I love, uh, love for folks to reach out if any of what I, I shared doesn't scare, scare you away. LinkedIn is, is the best place to reach me. So that, that I welcome any and all that outreach that way. It'd be great. Awesome. And, uh, for those, uh, it's probably in the show notes or in the title, but it's Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A, and then Merwin, M-E-R-W-I-N. And I'm sure you can find her on LinkedIn. Uh, Alyssa, thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, it's been fantastic to have you. Thank you. Hey folks, Sam Jacobs. It's Sam's Corner. That was a fantastic conversation with Alyssa. Just a lot of really important insights about 
the skills, the personal, the human connection skills that are required to be a great leader and a great manager. And we talked about a lot of different subjects and aspects of this idea, but one of them she mentioned, and if you're out there listening and you've just been promoted to be manager and you're now managing a team of people that used to be your peers, don't make these mistakes. One of the things that Alyssa said is the next day when she was at corporate executive board and she was promoted from SDR to SDR, BDR is what the title was then, uh, to BDR manager. She said she came in and she, you know, she put on her boss face, you know, and she, she, she was determined to be the boss and she was probably a little bit more remote. She was a little bit tougher, probably trying to act and walk with authority in a way that she thought might imply credibility. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work if people know who you, you are and you're automatically acting like somebody different. So don't put on airs when you're a manager or a leader. You have to embrace all sides of yourself. People respond to authenticity. They respond to real, real connection, real interpersonal relationships. And so the more that you're sort of acting like what you think the idea of a boss is supposed to be, I think the less effective you're going to be in this modern world. And I think Alyssa really drives that home. One of the things she talked about is the conditions for a high-performing sales team. One of them is that you have to be able to, to receive feedback. And the way that you are able to receive feedback is as if the leader and the manager is creating an environment of trust and intimacy. And so if you, if you are out there, you have to lead first by being vulnerable yourself as a leader. And you have to make sure that you create a, a zone of psychological safety, that it's okay for people to be themselves. Some of the most important work that Alyssa was talking about that she's now emphatic about, it's the first time she shared it, is about this concept of these, these workshops where people were removing their mask and talking about what it's like for them to come to work every day and what their personal issues were. She mentioned somebody that's going through recovery that, you know, that person obviously doesn't feel included if every celebration is going to be about alcohol. And that's just one example. So really creating a zone of psychological safety. And that that's what enables you to give tough feedback because people understand that you're not against them. You're not out to get them. You're not doing it because you're trying to be a big boss person. You're, you're doing it because you care about them. You have to deliver feedback compassionately, but if you can do that compassionately, you can really see results. People respond. It resonates with people. So be yourself. That's the, that is the lesson of Sam's Corner. Now, before we go, we, of course, want to thank our sponsors. We've got two sponsors, Conga, which is the leading end-to-end digital document transformation suite, and Outreach. Outreach is the leading sales engagement platform. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you haven't rated the show on iTunes, please do so. Uh, we would love your four or five-star ratings. And we really appreciate your feedback. If you want to get in touch with me, you always can. It's uh, linkedin.com forward slash the word in forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. Happy to tell you more about Revenant Collective, which is my life's work. Happy to tell you more about uh, the show and happy to receive feedback on the show. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time.